Ladies and gentlemen, presenting the professor, Greg Dooley, and the pundit, Steve Clark. Men, take the mic. Thank you, and we are back for another week of The Professor and the Pundit with Greg Dooley and Steve Clark. Our title sponsor is Nick Hopwood, who's a certified financial planner, founder, and president of Peak Wealth Management. Retire with confidence. So, Steve, I've had a few people ask about our timing of our podcast, and it will come out every Wednesday, including up through the football season, which is kind of an it. You're like, well, why Wednesday? And it kind of gets to what we are, I think, and what we're not. We're not that instant react to issues, to football, or things that happen on the field or immediately in the news. We're not going to break a lot of stories here. So we're going to be that deep breath look after the game, certainly record it closer to because we have to record it and edit it and drop it. But we're going to be more of that higher level, if you follow in Victor's, more of the off the field, big themes, big issues, and things that we enjoy to talk about. So It'll come out Wednesday mornings, usually by, say, 7 a.m. or something like that. But another reason is because it coincides with your epic regular (laughs) spot on WTKA, which is available anywhere on iHeartRadio and all that, that you do 9 a.m.s every Wednesday, right? So it'll give you a chance. If Sam and I want to talk about it, you can mention something about the podcast, but also kind of maybe parrot or echo or expand on some of the things that you discuss. So can you, I guess for people who don't know you, don't listen to TKA, can you talk about a little bit about maybe how that segment came to be and what you do? And then maybe we can get into, hey, this is kind of how you do it as we approach the football season. Sam's website and Sam and Ira's show on WTKA, the Michigan Insider. And it's called that for a good reason. Nobody is more inside Michigan football and basketball than Sam Webb. And independently, Ira knows a ton of stuff behind the scenes and has a great work ethic and vision himself. And we've built a real good professional rapport between the three of us, a kind of rapport that in the moment we know what each of us are thinking without even saying anything. So I kind of realized pretty quickly, Greg, that I wasn't going to be independently inside like Sam and I are, so what can I do? It occurred to me that I could try to work hard at understanding the opponent that Michigan was going to face. Each school, I think, has their own set of storylines, some with good momentum that average Michigan fan may not see, hear, but should hear, while others have their own drama and turmoil, which certainly make things more entertaining when you retell it. But that's kind of how I did it, and I, I need a few days to put those reports together. And so we do it on a Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. We're kind of doing the same thing with the dropping of these podcasts because in my research, when I prepare for these programs, if I were to do it a half hour after a game was over, I would sound completely different than what I would do on a Wednesday a few days later. You will see a coach when talked about, hey, what's your feeling on this? And the coach will have this generic answer, and it seems like a cop-out. But to me, it's true because it's what I live through. I need to see the film. This game just happened. I need a moment to reflect. 
And so there are things we all do this, leaving the stadium, walking out to our cars, going to the parking lot, talking with people we know at the tailgate afterwards. And we have this strong opinion. Why didn't they do this? They should have done that. How come this? The thing is, when you look back at it and check it again, some things get revealed. And a lot of times my opinions on things change completely a couple of days later than it did when you initially walk out. So that's part of the process involved in all that. And that's why I like having a couple of days. And then we also need a couple of days to actually form things put together. And then we can also preview and talk about next week's opponent. That's right. Or Sunday and Monday is about the immediate aftermath of what just happened. And starting Tuesday and Wednesday, Thursday and Friday, it's talk about what's going to happen. And storylines start to develop and things in the middle of the week start to break. That's worth commenting on. So Wednesday is a great day to be able to put things together. And we can have a little bit of both where we can still talk a little bit about what just happened with some perspective and then not be too soon to talk about the future. Yeah, no, no, makes sense. But by the way, your preparation, and of course, I'm very biased. It's fantastic. I know you spend a lot of time on it. And I think one time you shared with me your standard, which is if there's someone who lives and dies and follows the team you're previewing is listening, you want to meet their standard of, you want them to go, wow, this guy gets us. This guy understands us. And that is an amazing bar. But I feel like you pull it off. And by the way, I think you've heard that. And I'll give you some praise from some of our rival listeners who occasionally peek in and listen to Sam and Ira, and they've complimented you on it. So I'll say that. I'll say it for you. Thank you. Um, You do an awesome job, and there's a reason you've been doing it so long. In fact, I must say, so when Steve and I, and seriously, it's been years, we've been talking about doing this podcast, I was always like, and we're we're definitely not going to repeat a version of Steve's season previews and all that, and his ones. That's a different thing. It's a different format, and it's for a different audience. But I always said when we were thinking about doing this, like, hey, I'm, you know, I, I have things I talk about in Invictors and, you know, on Twitter and do these things and it'd be fun to talk about. But man, I think there's an audience for maybe a different version or more, but to leverage all these great things that you do pick up and learn and as you're researching teams and following the football program to get out there. And I think people would like. So we'll see if that formula works. But that was one of the reasons I think I always thought this would be a cool idea. And I already did this with UNLV a couple of weeks ago on, on the Michigan Insider. When you're previewing teams that Michigan's going to beat by 50, it's not about a particular player at a particular position. It's not like that at all. The teams that I preview that are in the lower third in the nation are much more interesting off the field than they are on <laughs> the field. There aren't many pro prospects, and unless they're super skilled on offense, it can be a real yawn to break down players by position. If there's one guy at a corner who's good and a guy up front who's great on defense, I mean, the obvious thought jumps out to everyone, including the guys who coach from the recliner with a beer in their hand, is we'll just run or pass around them. And, and, and don't need to say anything more about it. These teams that are in the lower 100, because of the transfer portal, and the immediacy of its impact can make a team go up or down, I think, 60 slots. Now, does that drive you nuts? Because you didn't have all the movement on the roster. 
and you've got to understand the roster. I get drive you nuts. Does it make your job harder? I actually I think it makes it easier if you can talk about the off the field things because again the on the field. All right. If they've only got a couple of players that are worth decent, it's, we'll just rotate around them, and it, it's no big deal. It's kind of a yawn. But this off the field stuff is crazy and it and it just shows you that if you can move up and I'm just making this number up but I think it's as many as 60 slots can be changed. So, I'll give you an example. You have Joe Parker, is the athletic director at Colorado State. Got this to know is, him a little bit. This is who Michigan played last year to open the season. I saw Joe Parker on the field, said hi before the game. <laughs> so, former senior associate AD at Michigan, a big part of the stadium rebuild in 2008, yep. okay? Colorado State had 14 wins in their last five years. 14 wins, okay? But here's the deal. Colorado State spends money. They pay their coaches, and they upgrade their facilities. Now you take Nevada, the Wolfpack. They have 30 wins from 2018 to 2021. So we're looking at 30 wins over four years compared to Colorado State, 14 wins over five years. It's a huge difference. Nevada does things on the cheap, and Colorado State convinces Jay Norvell to leave a winning program and join a losing program in the same conference, okay? This is like convincing Jim Harbaugh, Ryan Day, or James Franklin, for that matter, to leave where they're at and go to Rutgers. (laughs) It's a fair comparison, but the story doesn't stop there just because a coach moves. Because of the transfer portal, And right now, under these new rules where you get a one-off, where you can just go to another school and not have to sit out a year like you used to, the Rams, who are awful, Colorado State, Norvell takes over a dozen of his own players from Nevada and his favorite players, and they all go and start at CSU immediately. Wild. So in the process, because Nevada's being on the cheap, loses their coach, then they lose some of their best players with them. That doesn't even count the players that may be graduating or is going to transfer anyway because the new coach you hire doesn't mesh with these players' skill set. Right. So Nevada's roster changes in half immediately. Instead of being divided into fifths, you know, 85 scholarships and dividing them by five, which is 17, you know, you just might lose 50 which is over half. It's wild. Okay. It's totally wild. So guess what Nevada did last season? Two and 10. Two and 10 after being eight and five the year before. Yeah. And they're not rebounding right away. And I think this is where Nevada can drop actually 60 spots from being a top 60 team. They were above average Mountain West Conference football team to the basement. And the way the rules are set, if you lose a coach you can lose a good portion of your roster. Right. I'm wondering what could happen to Michigan State. You see what happened to Michigan State. They had beaten Michigan. Tuck's coming. They should be talked about as a top 10, top 15 team, and it goes completely out from underneath them. Now, injuries were definitely a part of Michigan State's problem last year. But you see how in one year, Michigan State went from Tuck coming to Tuck coming prematurely And you start to wonder what kind of Michigan State team there is going to be two years from now. Right now, the recruiting class is down to like three members. What? So I think these things are interesting to me, and I want to pass them along to other people because Nevada, Colorado State, and the other team that Michigan played in non-conference, Hawaii, 
was a complete spit show. Yeah, and we, we've talked before about the notion of momentum. States got to deal with this, right? They got to figure this out and stop the bleeding. You could have seen something at Michigan. Like, it, it's very possible. It could happen here. Winning solves a lot of problems. But we lost two pretty prominent people really kind of at the same time. If I recall correctly, they didn't say the nicest things either directly or reading between the lines about the program. And it didn't seem to affect us at all. If it were a few different players and the timing was a little different and maybe there wasn't a big Amos Alonzo Stag trophy in the in the trophy case, it could have gone differently. Right. Well, and the whole rules being changed about the immediate transfer and the transfer portal itself, which did exist when Michigan was having problems. But the way it is right now, if this was pushed forward a couple of years back into 2019, 2020, Michigan could have been adversely affected by all of this. But what's happening right now is happening at a point where Michigan is playing at its peak, its best football in 30 years. Yeah. And so now they're certainly benefiting from it. But what I'm seeing is that if you can lose that many slots in one year based on these off-the-field circumstances, your program can be absolutely run over or risen back up very, very quickly. Yeah. Yeah, it's and wild. so in the thing about Hawaii, I'll just share with this, you know, kind of briefly. Hawaii is a program in the bottom 20 spots in the NCAA. Michigan was scheduling them. I was doing some research on that. And they had a legendary coach there in June Jones, and he was coming back to kind of bridge the gap. Well, what Hawaii really wanted was their all NCAA quarterback who was working his way through the coaching ranks, Timmy Chang, to be their sort of head coach in waiting. And June Jones got offended by it. He didn't want every decision being made so that it works out to Timmy Chang becoming the, the new head coach. Yeah, can eventually. you blame him? Can you no, blame him? <laughs> not at all. So June Jones got public. He said he felt like he was being handcuffed. He felt like he was grooming this guy only to be fired in a couple years later. So he said, I'm out. It was like Shark Tank. Yeah. It was just like things started getting a little complicated. So he, ah, I'm out. And June Jones went out. And so Hawaii now feels like, well, we were planning on hiring Timmy. He's not quite ready, but what choice do we have? So Hawaii's struggling because Jimmy Chang's not ready to be the head coach, trying to play the part, and maybe eventually he'll get there. But right now, Hawaii's suffering because of it. So a lot of this off-field, on-field stuff is just crazy. And the Hawaii transfer portal was just absolutely nuts. So going into that year that Michigan played Hawaii, they lost their quarterback, their receiver, their running back, and key members of their defense we were playing a team at night that was a shell of a college football team. But I do give you some credit, Steve. You kind of played it off, but keeping track of all the comings and goings, uh, I get they have rosters and there's news and there's sites you probably use, but I'm for the first time kind of feeling that the news cycle or the events that are happening in the world are affecting what I'm talking about. Well, why didn't they before? Because when you talk about history, it kind of happened, and sure, you had your perspective, and maybe some things change your perspective that happen in the world or make something more interesting or not, but it's still the history, and that's what I talk about. So I'm not worried about writing an article about Fielding H. Yost in May that's going to be published in the fall, right? But everyone else who writes about college football this time of year has that problem. Your previews require you to have knowledge, and the last thing you want to do is talk about a guy who's not on their roster anymore. Oh, that's the scariest thing. Yeah. 
Oh, Greg, you're right. That is the scariest thing for me when I'm writing is to spend five minutes on a guy who's no longer there. Because some of these websites, and I'm talking about school websites, they haven't changed their data yet. So a, right. guy, a guy could have left in April, but if I were to go onto a website, now it wouldn't be at Michigan, but it would be some of these other schools that are in the bottom 30 that Michigan's playing in September, they haven't updated their website. See, I would find, like, what I would do is try to find, like, the version of Steve Clark or whomever and just build that relationship with them. And, hey, can I call you? <laughs> you know, <laughs> can I check a couple of things? Is this right? Because, I mean, I imagine that Dave Abloff and crew do a pretty good job with our roster. I don't know mm -hmm. how often they refresh it. But you can go on there and see the photos, profiles, numbers, stats, for guys almost indefinitely, I mean, for a pretty long time. <laughs> so one of the things, like, let's just take UNLV for an example. So they hired a new coach, a new coach this year, Barry Odom, and he hired an offensive coordinator who he's had ties with. And if you Google offensive coordinator for UNLV, you might get this name to show up, and the name is Bobby Petrino. We're all very familiar <laughs> <We are. laughs> with the life and times of Bobby Petrino, and at the time of his hiring, Petrino released a statement. I, I, I can't confirm that he was wearing a neck brace at the time that he made this, this statement <laughs> or go. anything like Here that. But, quote, he really looked forward to working with Odom, who is a talented and highly respected coach, and was excited to join the new direction at UNLV. And I'm sure you can Google that. And I jokingly said to myself after I'm reading this, let's see if Petrino lasts the year. After all, this is a guy who left as the head coach of the Atlanta Falcons before his first season was even finished to join a college football team in December. So he can't even make it through a full season as the NFL head coach of the Atlanta Falcons before quitting on his team. Left a locker room note. I just don't see him staying in Vegas for very long. I could have ended it there. But but you were but I hope he does. <laughs> so I can talk about all this and do a few jokes. Yeah. And, yeah. So my next story, <laughs> research, Petrino takes job at Texas A&M. Oh, geez. He lasted at UNLV for three weeks. Oh, boy. And it's another brutal slap for UNLV who saw Chris Beard, their basketball coach, for all of 19 days then takes the head coaching job at Texas Tech, another Texas school, by the way, and coaches them into a national title game in 2019. So UNLV has been hit like this twice, where they think they've got this name guy coming in, and he only survives two to three weeks before moving on. Wild. But, I mean, it's just Bobby Petrino. That's, that's crazy, man. That's wild. Now, leading up to the preseason and what we're going to talk about, I know that one theme that's going to come and it's going to build as the season goes on is this approach to a thousand all-time program wins. Again, winning fix a lot of problems. Okay. It's tough to say, yeah, well, Michigan's just been around forever and you know, that's why they have all these wins. Well, yeah, but we're winning now too, right, right now. So that whole argument. But what you are going to hear, and somebody sent me this. In fact, it might have been Nick Hopwood himself. Sent me this clip from Barstool Sports where Taylor Lewan and one of the Barstool personalities was talking about it. And, he, and I know their formula is to get guys like me to react. 
Okay, I took the bait. For Steve, okay, I'm taking the bait. <laughs> Why don't you play it, and at least a bit of it, and we'll, I'll react to what they're saying. In the early 1900s, they just invited like the local YMCA to Ann University Arbor, of Chicago. beat them, and then they're like, look, another another win for the boys. Did they teach them how to play football? Yeah. There were a couple teams the Detroit where they, they, YMCA. they brought they're them like, in, and, over. and they taught you, like, like, here's this sport that's taking over America. We're going to practice with you for two days, show you how to how to play the game, and then we're going to play you and beat you by two. And call it a title. Yeah. Call it yeah. a national <laughs> title. Yeah. Yeah. They don't ask how. They ask how many, boys. That's <laughs> all they do. I actually want to look it up real quick. 1902 <laughs> Michigan. Let's yeah. just pick a random year. You, you've already had this thing. No, 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 no. I'm just picking a random Michigan year. dominated in the 50s. That was like their last time that they like dominated it. 97, we won a national championship. Uh, you shared a national in title. Week, <laughs> week one, uh, 1902, they beat a school called Albion. Yeah. 88 to nothing. They were very good. <laughs> hey, I, do, I, I want to ask a question. Throughout the record books, when Michigan and Albion get together, these, <laughs> yeah. no love lost. No Taylor rival, Taylor Taylor Albion. No one. That's the kind of firepower we're doing. We got to get back to those good Dude, old that's days. That's a fucking juggernaut. Get back to that, Michigan. Let's do that again. All right. So what they're getting at is this thing that you maybe some of you guys who have Spartan fans or Buckeyes and things like that are going to get into, which is criticism for playing tiny, maybe non-existent teams today early on in our football life. Okay, that's what you're going to hear. So, yeah, you got a 1,000 wins, but how many times did you beat the Dental College of Ypsilanti right along the way? And the answer is we beat teams like that a few times. And here's the problem I have with that criticism. Yeah, we were a first mover. You know, our first game in 1879 is against Racine College. Game played in Chicago. We won. And that was win number one. But that was the first game west of the Alleghenies. So we went around and we're looking for teams to play. And by the way, it was really hard to travel to the East Coast back then. You know, it was difficult to, to fund a trip for the football team to go somewhere. But we did. Okay, we did play Harvard and teams like that early on. To find local competition, literally, we had to scratch together a game with this group from just south of Milwaukee and Racine to say, hey, how about a football game, right? So that went on. But yeah. While we were listening to this clip, I looked up Ohio State and Alabama. They are tied for second with 953 wins, 34 wins behind Michigan. The Buckeyes played Otterbein, Oberlin, Denison, Muskingum, Kenyon, and Carlisle. And that was 1904. Alabama also has 953 wins. They beat Birmingham High 57 to nothing and Marion 81 to nothing in 1902. Look, the three teams' overall winning percentage are separated by just two one thousandths of a point. And it wasn't long ago where Michigan led the nation in both overall wins and winning percentage. And who knows, might possibly do so again with an undefeated season. Yeah, sure. We literally, as we've mentioned here before, taught Notre Dame how to play the game. And so, yeah, and then we played them and beat them and won. You know, we that counts as a win. Okay, yeah, then Albion picked up football. And then Michigan Agricultural College or later Michigan State started to play. And we beat them too. And then Ohio State started a team. We beat them 86 to nothing in that, that year they mentioned, 1902. Yeah, we played a lot of teams. But by the way, it wasn't that long after we started playing, that football got pretty good, actually. We played good teams. So 
the University of Chicago, which doesn't exist anymore. Their coach was Amos Alonzo Stagg. They were really good at football. So was Wisconsin. So was Minnesota. And we had this like big four thing going on. And gradually the teams got better. A decade or two later, Notre Dame got good. Notre Dame had Newt Rockney play. You know, we know him as the coach, but they were very innovative with the forward pass. They beat Army in a kind of a famous game. Literally the team we taught to play football beat us not too long, a couple decades later in Ann Arbor, I believe in 1909. So some of those early wins were against not so great teams. But it's kind of like criticizing Henry Ford for not being able to keep pace with, say, a Tesla today. Or, you know, yeah, the, he, he made car, a lot of cars and he, he was innovative, but all the cars were black and slow and they had some problems. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, but we were the first ones. By the way, hi- historical context, understand that Michigan's football program predates the existence and formation, the rudimentary formation in some cases, of most of the Premier League soccer teams, the teams that compete, if you look at their founding date. We've been around before that. So it's laughable to me to punish us for being around for a long time, which is the refrain you will hear from people as we approach our thousandth win in college football. Well, take a look at it, Greg. Michigan wasn't playing a 12-game schedule in 1879. They weren't playing a 12-game schedule in 1889 either. There was just a few games being played. Look, this is what Michigan is is defining their legacy in. They're the first to do this. You know, leaders and best, they're going to look for first, okay? So Michigan played first in 1879. They played two games. Rutgers will hold down the mantle of the first college football game, played in 1869. Both games hardly resemble what college football is today. Yeah. If you wanted to define when college football starts – Every program is going to tell you differently. Ohio State will look and say, college football started when we started getting good. Or join the Big Ten like in 1912 or 13. Right. Well, you have the famous snowball game of 1950. Ohio State will put in their media releases since 1951, which is the first year of Woody Hayes. Correct. Ohio State beat Michigan in 1951, so we might as well start there. Yeah. I mean, that's what every press group does. Let's, let's start where we have the advantage. Yeah, I'll give you another one with Ohio State real quick. 1934, Michigan's worst season ever. That's when they started the gold pants tradition that season and then beat us for the next four seasons pretty bad. So, you know, there's, there's these defining <laughs> moments yeah. that are determined by the actual university themselves of when things actually start or not. And if you're concerned about playing the little sisters of the poor back then, I will say look at most people's schedules right now in the month of September anyway. You're doing the same thing. Right. Well, they sure are, some more than others. The other thing is occasionally you'll see Michigan play like an alumni group. They don't count those in the all-time win total. And can I say something? Like they use the example of a physician's college. Guess what those guys at the physician's college are? They're older college grads who probably played football somewhere at a college. So these weren't exactly pushover games if we want to get down to the nitty gritty. And here it cracks me up that the dude from Barstool, by the way, randomly picked 1902, okay, which John Crick would argue. My buddy, the author of Natural Enemies and Stag versus Yost, I believe if you had him here in studio, he would tell you that was the most dominant Michigan football team of all time. And they just randomly happened to pick that out of 143 other options that they could have went to. So, yeah, I think 
They set up that piece, let's put it that way. But I'm here for all the listeners out there to defend our win total and our history and our legacy. And I will continue to do so, Steve, <laughs> as long as this podcast is on the airways, okay? So so Michigan played Stanford in the first ever Rose Bowl. Correct. In 1902 and won 49 to nothing. By the way, bowl of any kind? Remember, there is no NFL. NFL is right. two decades away. Right. Okay, so when you talk about football history... It's defined by college football. It's where it started. Yeah, the first Rose Bowl, by the way, was billed and marketed as a championship game. But the trip out west for Michigan that year was scheduled before the season. We were going to play somebody. They were going to promote it. And by the way, this is often confused by historians, but Stanford lost to Cal in 1901. They weren't even the champion of what was kind of the Pacific Coast League back then. One of the reasons we played Stanford is because that's where Fielding H. Yost came from the year before. He coached Stanford. They changed their rules that a faculty member needed to be their coach. And he decided to look back to the Midwest to continue his business interests and to coach somewhere. He actually inquired about a job from, from Illinois, believe it or not, which probably would have transformed their history. And Illinois already had hired somebody. The Illinois Athletic director basically said over to Michigan, hey, you should give this guy a look. He's insane. He sent me 50 pounds of scrap clippings about how great he is, but he looks like he knows his stuff. They looked at it, they arranged a meeting, and they hired him. The rest was history. But we played Stanford, and they kind of retro. We, we retro. That was the Tournament of Roses, which they still call it today. Mm-hmm. It was a more of just a football game, which I believe the Tournament of Roses is today, which they kind of call the football game. But they wanted something more interesting, And the organizers say, hey, what about this new game of football? Wouldn't that be great? Michigan, they committed to the trip, but one of the big things that held them up in order to have the game and make the trip and commit was who's paying our expenses. (laughs) And so that was one of the last pieces to fall. But they retro call it the Rose Bowl because they named it effectively after the Rose Bowl structure, which was built in the 20s, had its 100th anniversary here recently. And that's why they call the name the Rose Bowl, because of the shape of the stadium and the name of the stadium. And that's why we call all the championships bowls, because of that. And that's why the Super Bowl, Steve, is the Super Bowl. It all comes back to the Rose Bowl. Taking a look at Michigan, they're at 989 wins. Damn right. So the week before Ohio State, if Michigan goes 11-0, they would get it the week before the Michigan-Ohio State game. Which is Maryland, Ira's beloved Turks. <laughs> but if they lose along the way... It's Ohio. It's Ohio State, <laughs> yeah. yeah. For, for not only potentially a Big Ten championship, but for the 1,000th win, which goes back to me remembering the 1903 game, the 100th meeting between Michigan and Ohio State was in 2003. Awesome. And that seemed important at the time. But getting to 1,000 wins and winning a Big Ten championship, yeah, that would, be, that would be epic if that could happen. I met Archie Griffin at that 100th game. Great dude. Mm. Great. He was yeah. awesome. He was so cool. Oh, he's a great ambassador for college football, too. Yeah, he was cool. Lastly, on Michigan getting its 1,000th win, whenever that may be, I'm curious about how it will be covered. Mm. I know there's going to be a big deal made out of it in Ann Arbor. The question to me is, does ESPN or Fox make a big deal out of it on television? 
And I'm just trying to think of the scenarios, but I mean, it can range from, hey, Michigan's playing Maryland, and by the way, if Michigan wins, it'll be the 1,000th win. After the game, Michigan wins, beats Maryland. Michigan wins its 1,000th game as Blake Corum scores two touchdowns, J.J. McCarthy throws for three. And it's an afterthought. It could be as low as that. Or does it get bigger than that? Does it say college football game day is live at Maryland because Michigan may win its 1,000th game? Which do you see coming out of this to be more likely? I think if it's Maryland, they probably put a lot of effort into some pre-packaged, pre-produced pieces and really go for it. I don't know if they go as far as ESPN's there unless Maryland's decent, right? Less so for Ohio State just because of the magnitude of which will probably be that game. They'll do some historical context and stuff like that, but I think they, they'll probably use it, and I'm just thinking off the fly here, Steve, as really an opportunity to promote that Maryland game as best they can. And then to your point about game day, maybe that's the hook, right? <laughs> We're here. We're here for the Terps, but also... I have a feeling there's going to be some talk about Michigan winning 1,000 games. I've seen other people talk about, in a post-game show, giving a little bit of recognition, maybe a graphic, maybe a tiny feature, 10 seconds worth of it. The next step is whether you do a full five-minute package on it in your three-hour football game day pregame show, whether that deserves time. Maybe you'll get that. I know that if it comes down to getting that 1,000th win against Ohio State in Michigan Stadium, it is the first thing that all Michigan people in Michigan athletics will talk about. Yeah. What's on the line? A Big Ten championship and the 1,000th win. The only team with 1,000 wins in NCAA history. This milestone could happen. Everyone else who gets 1,000 wins will be much later in time. Yeah, and and I remember, I mean, the... The hype around the 100th game isn't the same thing because it involved both teams, right? It was the 100th game against right. Michigan and Ohio State. So it was a shared interest and in, in all that. But it was pretty big. I mean, they, they promoted that pretty strong. They um, did. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, I probably remember it a lot better because Michigan had a good outcome. Right. Like one of the last, you know, until, until, until Fickle and all that. But, yeah, it was great. I think Ohio State will make a big deal out of it if they had won the game, preventing Michigan from getting that 1,000 They sure win. will. They'll make a big deal, but I don't think they talk about it until after they would secure a victory, and then they wouldn't stop talking about it. Yeah. Hopefully we get to see that one way or the other, us play for that. Probably will, I'm guessing. Wouldn't be surprised, though, if we stumble along the way. Just it's hard to beat everybody. It's hard. People forget how many close calls we had two years ago. Uh, Nebraska, Penn State, really, really fortunate in some of those games to get out of there with a win. It's tough. Can I add one more thing here? Yeah. So the Michigan Athletic Department is fortunate, okay? Things are good. We're rolling, right? And I recently, and I think you, had to upgrade our seats. Uh, We had the option to upgrade our seats in Michigan Stadium. And it's a very elaborate process. I won't bore you if you don't have season tickets. But there's a couple of things to understand. First of all, every seat in the stadium, the right to buy a seat in the stadium comes with a required donation or what they call PSC, right? Preferred seat contribution. You can have the worst seat in the stadium and you're paying 80 bucks. So it's, it's not optional anymore. So you go on and they have a wonderful like diagram of the stadium and you can zoom in 
and it shows every single seat is accounted for with a little dot. And if it's green, it's available to move. And if it's red, it's not. Steve, there's a lot of red. Okay, so why is there a lot of red? Because I think a lot of people, well, obviously we have Ohio State on the schedule. And a lot of people who have those tickets experienced that scene or didn't and want it. But I'll tell you, I had very little flexibility, certainly to move. And by the way, I'm not a baller. I am in the 80 section, but I am all the way over through maneuvering over the years to the farthest you can be directly on the aisle in the $80 required per seat section Mm -hmm. where I can literally slap a high five with the dude or woman across the aisle and he's paying $225 and I am 25 seats away from the people paying $400. So that's kind of the nuance. I think it goes up to $700 as you get closer to the tunnel, the middle of the the Mm -hmm. field. And then of course for club, for suites, for all that, you're in a different universe, right? But there was not a lot of room to move around. Either way, even if you wanted to downgrade, there weren't a lot of like good seats where you could go, honey, you know, let's dial it back a little bit this year. There weren't like two primo like aisle or front row or seats that I could see anywhere available to move. My seats are in the Chrysler corner. There's an aisle seat among the three. Clutch. Had them since 1985, but I'm not moving. I'm not moving. I'm going to continue to, to purchase I'm not moving. them. I'm not moving. Because, <laughs> well, I could see a better game, maybe from a different angle. The, the thing is, the reason why I'm not moving is getting close to be 40 years. I'm not moving from that, those seats, even wild. if better seats are along the way or, or whatever. I think a lot of people are like that. Because you got to remember, like Michigan Stadium is more akin to a religious structure. And I, and I don't say that lightly. You go by there on a Saturday afternoon in the summer, and there's people taking wedding photos there, right? I personally know more than one person who's spread the ashes of a family member there inside, somewhere inside the stadium or around. It, I think it worked better when it was grass. And the place is sacred. And so That's I'll tell you. rubber pellets the players are getting on their legs and arms. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's grandma. But I've had tickets since I've been a Michigan student, right? And I didn't, yeah, I didn't want to give that up. But one more little thing on the ticket process is, now, you have the right when you order your tickets to pay, it's around 50 bucks more to get paper tickets, right? Well, who cares about that? Guess what? A lot of people care about it. <laughs> I know because, somebody across the room from me does. Uh, so a lot of people care about it because tickets are one of those things that I, I know this isn't a shock to everyone. Like people collect concert tickets and or did and things like that right you have your stubs your rolling stones concert or whatever that have collected incredibly amount of detail and nuance and passion around collecting ticket stubs and when you see the sum total of a collection like i have so so what do i have i kind of manufactured mine right i i went to a guy jack briegel who is one of those guys who collects tickets passionately for every game home and away. And he has every single home game since Michigan Stadium was opened. He has a stub from every game, and he has them on display at his house. It's awesome. He's only missing, I think you can count them on two hands, 
all the games since 1927, home and away. And there are some weird, tough ones to find, some not so weird. Like the ones that Taylor Lewan was mentioning earlier in the Well, <laughs> that's <partial>. but now <laughs> Michigan Stadium was built in 1927. So yeah. as soon as you go to 1926, you're playing at Ferry Field. Right. Oh, boy. You're right at 1926, if you're talking about a Ferry Field intact ticket, 1000 minimum, something like that. It's mm-hmm. not $100. It's several hundred to 1000 or more, depending on the game, depending on the circumstances. You get back to the Yost era, you're looking at, for an intact ticket stub, a couple thousand plus for a ticket stub. And by the way, where do they show up? They show up in family scrapbooks that have been passed on from generation to generation. And they glued ticket stubs, some of them did, from a big game. So what you find when you find a ticket from that era, very common, if they show the back, you could see where they ripped it or carefully tried to remove it. And there are techniques to try to remove them without damaging the ticket. Yes, it gets that weird, but that's what's going on. And so Michigan ending the paper ticket has caused a lot of angst for people who collect this stuff. And what I've started to do is kind of manufacture for the Big Ten championship game, I had a digital ticket. And so I kind of made what is effectively like a ticket, threw some confetti in there, used the logo. And to me, it's personal. It looks sweet. It does look sweet. Thank you. And I've had many people go, will you do this all year next year? You know, for us. But programs are going away. All that kind of stuff. We're going digital. Now, there may be some opportunities for new things to collect that already are, like NFTs from your seat that create a digital kind of version of your experience and your visit to the game. Like maybe that'll be cooler one day and and provide more memory. But for now, for old school people like me, we're pissed. (laughs) We're just pissed. And the funny thing is, it kind of sucks to pay like what it is, $45 extra to get the paper tickets. But I think a lot of people would do it. What will it cost me? But the hard part is they're not investing any money in designing tickets. Like they used to have great artwork on the tickets and programs, cool photos, and frankly, they kind of just started mailing that in and not putting any effort into it over the years where it was a block M, maybe a photo of a, a player or something like that, but so kind of lame. I had a collection where Michigan football had the fan day, and they allowed the kids and the families to take pictures out on the field. And my kid was, he wasn't quite a year, wasn't walking. And he was on that artificial surface with the pellets, and it was weird to him, and it was an accident, but he does this perfect three-point stance at less than a year. So I get down with him in a three-point stance as well. Hold it. And, Hold yeah, it. Take the picture. <laughs> and, I mean, it looks really, really good. And then we try to recreate that each year of him growing up. And when we make these collages, and Fan Day stopped for whatever reason about eight or nine years into it. So that piece is over. So I get it. I mean, I had this idea that we'd just be doing this all the way up until he was an adult or when he's really kicking my butt and knocking me over. But I understand your feeling. I mean, this this thing is a personal investment and it looks great in your basement having all these tickets, you know, presented in the way they are. Yeah. So what I display is one from every season since 1927 is what I have. So since Michigan Stadium was born, basically I have one ticket from each year. 
So I don't have everyone, you know, on a bunch of them. I just had one from each season. But you see the different artwork yeah. and the styles and all that. Yeah, you know. and if and if they get rid of the paper tickets altogether, it's, it's an issue it's for an, me. It's an issue for you. I'll figure out something, which doesn't necessarily have an answer. But not that long ago, there's like a game in 1940 that was incredible in California where no ticket is known to exist anywhere and i wonder if they didn't actually issue tickets for the game they actually did something else and it wasn't a small game it was michigan cal it's the game where tom Harmon evades the drunk fan on one of his touchdown <laughs> runs which is probably something to talk about in the future there's no ticket that exists that anyone knows that exists to that game right but the funny thing is the program from that game there's a full program maybe that's the key is you can buy it for 10 20 bucks on eBay from 1940. So it's that's that accessible. Absolutely. But the ticket is not. And this is one of the most historic games in Michigan football history, not only because of what Tom Harmon did. He ended on the, up on the cover of Life magazine not far after, which depicted that play I was talking about, the drunk fan. Not only that, it's the first time a football team traveled by plane to a game, and they actually had military, they, they used a couple different planes, they actually had military people on the plane to study the effects on young men, hint, like what would happen if we transported soldiers like this, to see how they would respond, how they would perform, how hydrated they would be, and ultimately perform in the game and then fly back. It's the first time it happened. Mm-hmm. So that's going to do it for The Professor and the Pundit. Thank you again for joining us. A reminder to listen, rate, review, and share. Follow all the episodes you can wherever you get your favorite podcast. But until then, remember, Michigan football, our back-to-back Big Ten champs, winners over Ohio State and Michigan State. Go Blue. Go Blue. Go Blue.